Thanks for listening to the First Take podcast. I'm Simon King, an editor for First Word Pharma Plus. On this week's episode, we delve into the potential implications of Fibrogen's newly disclosed safety data for the investigational anemia drug Roxadustat ahead of an FDA advisory committee meeting. I catch up with drug safety expert Anthony Cox to discuss the latest pharmacovigilance developments concerning AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine in Europe. And we take a closer look at Acadia Pharmaceuticals' efforts to expand approval of their drug Nuplazid to treat dementia-related psychosis. The US company Fibrogen and its partner AstraZeneca ran into some controversy last month when the FDA announced previously undisclosed plans to convene an advisory committee meeting to discuss the regulatory application for Roxadustat, an investigational treatment for anemia in chronic kidney disease patients. Wall Street analysts have pegged the drug as a potential blockbuster. This week, Fibrogen announced that in preparation for the meeting, it became aware that it needed to run another analysis of the drug safety data, which has returned less compelling results than those originally submitted to the FDA. I spoke to my colleague Michael Flanagan about the disclosure and its potential implications. So, Michael, what exactly has Fibrogen disclosed this week? So they basically admitted that the analysis that they have been touting for essentially the safety of Raxadustat um, from the pooled phase three data from a, you know, a huge uh, 15 trial program with 10,000 patients. Um, so they've, they've been sort of touting this safety data as uh, being one thing and suggesting that Raxadustat is um, superior to ESAs, which is the standard of care in the non or in the dialysis dependent uh, CKD population. So they've been doing this for for you know a year or more, and it turns out that they were using a post hoc. You can get into all the details, and it gets really hairy. But really, they basically just used um, an analysis that that was not agreed upon with the FDA. So they went back and used the pre-specified analysis um, methodology, and they ter- determined that Roxadustat is comparable, essentially non-inferior to ESAs in the di- dialysis-dependent population, but it's not superior. So before they were saying it's superior, now they can no longer say it's superior. So it's essentially, um, you know, it's a, it's a it's a change. It's an important change, a meaningful change to the risk benefit profile, and um, you know it sort of ties in with previous issues and sort of a crisis of confidence, if you will, from the investment community and and perhaps physicians as well. Um, just given the way that they've communicated about prior clinical disclosures and that sort of thing, so it's it's just. It, it comes at a at a tough time. They're they're basically about to have an adcom, um, and you know obviously ask the FDA for for approval. So um, you know it's it's a it's a rough a rough time for this. Okay. And what impact could this disclosure potentially have on the approvability of Roxadustat? Do you think? And 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 I guess subsequently its commercial opportunity as well. 
Right. And that's obviously the bigger questions here, at least looking forward. So, uh, you know, the analyst community seems like they uh, were already just in recent weeks, the FDA announced that they were going to hold this adcom sometime later this year. So the fact that FDA, you know, had questions and is going to hold this adcom, that right there raised sort of some eyebrows about where Roxadustat is headed. Um, and now this clearly ties in with that and sort of amplifies the the concerns, you might say. I know I saw some analyst reports suggesting that like they were lowering their probability of success from like 50% to like 25 to 30%. So, I mean, obviously that's, um, you know, it's a meaningful change. And, you know, this was seen, this product, Rexadustat, was seen as basically a surefire blockbuster. I saw sales projections of up to, say, like $3 billion, um, you know, annually. So this obviously, the, the fact it's no longer um, superior to ESAs will have a meaningful impact, I think, on the the commercial prospects because, you know, physicians are they won't have that incentive to to reach for this um or they you know there's still an incentive it's an oral drug rather than you know uh, um, an in injectable but you know there's there's not the the incentive on the better safety component so um you know i i've, I've seen the you know peak sales lowered by some analysts from three billion to one billion um and that sort of thing so we'll see i'm gonna actually talk to a physician about this in the uh, perhaps next week and get thoughts on on what this really means for the product and, and what he or she thinks uh, about the prospects going forward. But long story short, it's it's not a good thing. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. The European Medicines Agency said on Wednesday that unusual blood clots with low blood platelets should be listed as very rare side effects associated with AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine, though they still believe its overall benefits outweigh any potential risks. Meanwhile, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency also said on Wednesday that people in the UK under 30 will be offered an alternative COVID-19 vaccine to AstraZeneca's product. The UK's Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation said the move was being made out of the utmost caution rather than any serious concerns. I spoke to Anthony Cox, who leads the Medicine Safety Research Group at the University of Birmingham, about the new developments. Anthony, when I spoke to you a few weeks ago, you shared your misgivings about the decision of some European countries to suspend use of the AstraZeneca vaccine um, when these safety issues kind of first arose. Does acknowledgement of these very rare side effects by the EMA um, change your view at all? Not, not really. I, I think in some ways it, it sort of confirms my view. The pauses that were brought in, some of them were like not age-restricted, so just suspension of the vaccine in some areas, but the age-related pauses that have been brought in, um, sort of suggested that they knew there was some sort of sort of increasing risk as you went down the age groups, but they do have no evidence for that. And it's quite clear from the um, EMA press conference and the, the material they've released that they don't really have data, good data for an age restriction. And if you look at the way that the UK has chosen to um, 
uh, restrict the use of AstraZeneca vaccine. They've they've done so in the ages like the age group twenty to twenty nine year olds. Now the reason they've done that isn't really because of serious harms from the vaccine, and um, but actually from the reduced risk those particular individuals of that age group suffer from COVID nineteen infection. So part of me thinks actually that the the recent EMA decision and information that has been provided should be making these EU states who have age-related restrictions in, like say for example patients um, under the age of 60 or under the age of 55 um, are quite common um, groups, um, th those should be reviewed because in fact the, the, the benefit risk for, for most group populations of um, of individuals is is much more on the benefit side than it is on the risk side. Um, so I, I don't know whether if anyone saw the um, UK MHRA Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation press conference where they have David Spiegelhalter's groups um, potential benefits versus potential harms graphs. I mean it's quite clear that in like 30 to 39 year olds, 40 to 49 year olds that the, the, the benefits clearly outweigh the risks of the vaccines. Um, and, and even in the group where the UK has restricted it, it was a fairly finely balanced decision. And I think, and, and they themselves, the JCVI, said it was done out of an abundance of caution rather than um, a, a safety concern. So I'm slightly surprised to see some EU states make decisions to actually widen the um, restrictions on the use of the AZ vaccine rather than um remove them i mean obviously that decision or those decisions by those company uh, those countries uh, speaks to the kind of the, the politics i guess that are up at play here i mean talking about those graphical illustrations that you mentioned uh, that were that were presented uh, in, in the uk yesterday i mean i thought it was quite fascinating obviously the other sort of parameter is not only um the risk benefit and how that changes by age group, but obviously also um, how that changes based on, uh, you know, your risk of being exposed to COVID-19, um, which, you know, at the moment, certainly in the UK seems to be much lower than it is in mainland Europe. So it would appear that that is also a, a you know, a, a parameter that needs to be taken into account when choosing whether to, to use the vaccine or not, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there were three graphs that the group um, created, which they've put on the internet. So there's one based around when we were at the peak of our second wave in the UK, uh, one based around sort of now in March, and one based in February where things weren't quite so bad um, as, the, as the peak of the wave. And I mean, in the wave and in the immediate post-wave moment in, in February, the, the benefit risk balance was clearly in favour of using the vac the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, so, I mean, th those are probably the February or, or maybe the week the wave um, graphic are probably the, the ones that correspond to some of the EU states that have the age restriction, and they have even less reason to have an age restriction than the UK has um, at twenty to twenty nine years old. Um, so, I'm, I'm perplexed as to how they are making the decision. They seem to be making the decision about the risks of the vaccine um, 
independent of the context of how the vaccine is being used in, in a pandemic it, it appears to be the decision making seems to be based purely on the risk without looking at the benefit um one could argue they have alternative vaccines that are available but um do they really um th there's still apparently vaccine shortages across europe um and people setting up contracts with um countries outside the eu's pro procurement program for example so I'm not sure there is an excess of vaccines um, and it seems to me that the, the way they prematurely pulled the vaccine has put them in a position where they're a little bit trapped by their own logic and, and it's hard to pull back from something when you've done it um, initially because what sort of message are you sending about well why is it why are you suddenly releasing it? I suppose you could make the argument that EMA have now done this review and there isn't a reason to age restrict and then okay we're going to get rid of those age restrictions that would make sense but they appear not to be going for it i'm not sure it is political though i'm i'm i think we have to take it on good faith that these are scientific decisions being made by committees but it would be lovely to see the reasoning behind it in the same way that we've seen the jcvi's reasoning around um risk of serious harms versus risk of like ICU admissions. Uh, I think we need to see that. Earlier this week, Acadia Pharmaceuticals confirmed that the FDA has issued a complete response letter regarding its regulatory application seeking approval of the drug Nuclazid as a potential treatment for hallucinations and delusions associated with dementia-related psychosis. Acadia had previously announced last month that the FDA had identified deficiencies with its application. Despite a prior agreement with the agency about the design of a pivotal phase three study targeting a broad DRP patient population, it appears that the FDA's concerns are focused on the statistical significance of some data from this trial. My colleague Becky Simon has been tracking the story closely. Becky, can you summarise what the FDA's concerns are? Yeah, so it's, uh, it appears to be um, that, you know, sort of despite this, this previous uh, regulatory alignment, you know, that you've mentioned of being able to run, you know, what is effectively a, a basket trial for um, all types of uh, dementia-related psychosis, so lumping in um, dementia related to uh, frontotemporal disorders, al Alzheimer's, of course, um, and Parkinson's disease, where Nuclazid already has its its initial approval. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so, despite having had this agreement uh, for some time now, that uh, this this basket approach would be accept acceptable, and you know we don't need to break out these subtypes of, of disease ideology. Um, now the FDA appears to be sort of walking back that agreement and uh, saying that they want Acadia to be able to show, you know, efficacy um, within these different uh, disease subtypes. Um, it's, there is perhaps some indication that uh, FDA was most concerned about uh, these Alzheimer's population, um, which I say primarily because um, Acadia had submitted a separate supportive uh, phase two study um, in Alzheimer's related dementia. 
which, which, which had very, you know, mixed results, um, you know, efficacy uh, wasn't as, you know, clear cut as some might have hoped. Um, so I feel the combination of not having a standalone study in Alzheimer's, you know, show any, you know, robust, robust effects for nucleosid sort of combined with um, also, you know, not seeing a particularly um, uh, strong showing from the subset of Alzheimer's patients that were in this larger uh, dementia study, you know, didn't give the, the FDA much confidence um, that the drug had, you know, a, uh, a lot going for it outside of this uh, Parkinson's population where it's, where it's already approved. Okay. Um, and it, 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 yeah, it's also interesting just in the in the backstory of this of this drug, knowing that it's had it, it has just been through lots of regulatory up, up, ups and downs, um, having already had uh, a prior FDA safety review that for, for which you know it escaped unscathed. Um, but it, it is just not Acadia's you know first time um, being at sort of the wrong end of the regulatory stick with the FDA, so to speak. <laughs> And what are the potential implications for Acadia, uh, you know, based on what the FDA now appears to be asking for? Yeah, yeah. So, um, while Acadia is very quick to say that they have um, no plans for further cl clinical development um, at this time, uh, so they'll be going into um, a, a review meeting um, with the FDA in about a month, I believe. Um, to sort of plead their case for, um, you know, that they have, you know, complete successfully completed the uh, the clinical program that the uh, that the FDA asked them to. Um, but uh, assuming uh, that the that the agency doesn't, you know, reverse course and you know accept the uh, the phase three trial that um, uh, that has already been completed, uh, then the expectation is that they'll be on the hook. Um, to uh, effectively repeat their phase three study with um, with a much larger population, if they really do need to show efficacy in all of these, you know, individual dementia subgroups, um, is you're looking at something like you know twice the size of the original phase three trial, and then the possibility of needing to um, repeat their uh, phase two uh, Alzheimer's study also. Um, so outlook, you know, isn't great um, unless they can, uh, you know, successfully plead their case before the FDA. Excellent. Thank you, Becky. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the First Take podcast. For daily pharmaceutical and biotech news and analysis, please visit firstwebpharma.com. Have a great weekend and stay safe.